Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Phyllis Bennis, a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies and author, who talks about the urgent need for an immediate ceasefire and de-escalation to end the rising number of civilian deaths in Gaza and Israel. Ofer Nyman, a Jewish-Israeli anti-apartheid peace activist living in Jerusalem who assesses Israeli public opinion on the military siege of Gaza and their views on Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's future. And Nelson Lichtenstein, research professor at the University of California, who discusses what's at stake for the U.S. labor movement in the United Auto Workers' month-long strike against the nation's big three automakers. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. A year after Haiti's acting prime minister, Ariel Henry, called for an international force to protect against growing gang violence in the country, the United Nations Security Council approved a one-year deployment of a Kenyan-led peacekeeping force to Haiti. China and Russia abstained in the vote. In recent months, more than 2,400 Haitians have been killed. The United States and France were reluctant to send in a new UN force given the criminal abuses of earlier peacekeepers who committed sexual assault and spread a cholera epidemic which killed nearly 10,000 people in the poor Caribbean nation. Many people in the capital city of Port-au-Prince welcomed news that an international force will be arriving in Haiti this January, but others worry that the soldiers will only provoke more violence. The last peacekeeping mission led by Brazil ended in 2017. The U.S. pledged $200 million to fund the new international force, along with contributions from Antigua, Barbuda, Bermuda, Jamaica, Spain, and Senegal. Civil society groups have long blamed Haiti's acting president, Henri, for blocking a transition to a democratically elected government after Haitian president, Jovenel Moïse, was assassinated in July 2021. Union Pacific, the nation's largest freight rail carrier, was recently criticized by the Federal Railway Administration for poor train maintenance and furloughing essential workers. The letter from the Rail Industry Regulatory Agency was issued in mid-September and came after inspections of a Union Pacific rail yard in Nebraska over the summer. Overall, railway inspectors found 70% of train engines had mechanical deficiencies and 20% of freight cars had safety defects, a rate which is twice the national average. The inspection came eight months after the Norfolk Southern freight train derailment and toxic chemical spill in East Palestine, Ohio. ProPublica reports that railroad unions insist that the safety issues flagged at Union Pacific are the result of the railroad using precision scheduling, which places a priority on efficiency, running heavier, longer trains with fewer staff and keeping them in constant motion. 
The regulatory agency was critical of the railroad for allowing its managers to pressure inspectors to delay repairs in order to keep freight moving. As Republican-controlled states continued rollback voting rights and pass voter suppression laws, disabled persons are facing new roadblocks to casting their ballots, including long lines and lack of curbside service. In These Times reports that as of 2016, only 17% of U.S. polling locations were fully accessible. More than 400 anti-voting measures have been introduced in 48 states in recent years, a strategic attempt to exclude marginalized voters. These efforts to prevent accessible voting have proven disturbingly successful, despite federal laws intended to make voting easier. Only 7 of 14 southern states offer curbside voting, and the majority of these states have introduced and passed voter suppression legislation. The group New Disabled South is now working to pass a Disabled Voter Bill of Rights in five southern states, the first of which is aimed at Georgia in the 2024 election. The legislation would require mail-in ballots to be more easily accessible, protections for poll workers and others who assist disabled voters with their ballots, curbside voting, and accessible polling locations. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. latest conflict between Israel and Hamas, set off on October 7th after Hamas terrorists slaughtered 1,400 Israelis at a music festival and in their homes, has entered a second week with Israeli airstrikes in Gaza, killing an estimated 3,000 Palestinian civilians. An explosion at the El Hali Arab Hospital in the middle of Gaza City on October 16th killed up to 500 Palestinians. Initial reports blamed an Israeli missile, but the Israeli military denied responsibility and maintains an Islamic Jihad misfired rocket was responsible for the deadly explosion at the hospital. Hamas, which is thought to be holding 199 Israeli hostages in Gaza, has reportedly stated it will consider releasing civilian hostages if Israel stops bombing Gaza. Meanwhile, Palestinian residents in the West Bank have been the target of violence from Israeli settlers in the military. The Palestinian Health Ministry reported that in the weeks since Hamas's October 7th attack, 54 Palestinians, including children, have been killed, with more than 1,100 injured. As the Israeli military prepares for a ground invasion of Gaza to destroy Hamas's leadership and infrastructure, President Biden has scheduled a visit to Israel on October 18th. However, after the hospital bombing, meetings with Jordan's King Abdullah, Egyptian President Sisi, and Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas were postponed. Your reporter spoke with Phyllis Bennis, a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies and author, who talks about the urgent need for an immediate ceasefire and de-escalation of the conflict, 
which a group of 13 progressive Democrats have proposed in a recent House resolution that calls for a ceasefire and facilitating humanitarian assistance to enter Gaza. It has been civilians, ordinary people, seniors, children, babies, women, elders, men, everyone, who are suffering and are paying the price. I have to say that the urgency right now, the urgency of now, as Dr. King put it, is that we desperately need a ceasefire on all sides. We need to stop the killing. We need to stop the violence. The claims by the Biden administration that they have urged Israel to not violate uh, international law and international humanitarian law, essentially the laws of war, simply doesn't mean anything in the context of the constant flow of bombs that are being dropped on this incredibly impoverished, crowded area that already, we should be clear, has been under a massive, impossible-to-imagine almost, siege for 16 years. The siege is that's being ordered now, that's now you know cut off food and medicine and fuel and water from the people of Gaza and forced people out of their homes, is an escalation of something that already existed. I read something the other day that shocked me, as familiar as I thought I was with the impact of the sanctions and the siege on the people of Gaza. I didn't know this one. And that is, and this was as of last January, not in the context of the current crisis, but in the context of the 16-year siege, that of all the children in Gaza, and of that 2.2 million population, half, 1.1 million are children under the age of 18. And those children in Ga- across Gaza, 20% of them are stunted by the age of two because there is simply not enough good food with protein and all the things kids need. I was stunned by that. And that was before this level of siege. Now, I am glad, Scott, to say that finally there is a move that it just broke in Congress a, a few hours ago. A number of members of Congress are now putting forward a resolution calling for de-escalation and a ceasefire on all sides. And they very consciously and I think quite brilliantly put together language that is short and simple and doesn't demand a, a level of agreement that we are simply not going to be able to find inside Congress. I think that every bit of this very short resolution is something that members of Congress across the board should be supporting. And I would hope that your listeners would take seriously the need to be calling their members of Congress and urge them to sign off. It says four things as a description and then two things that it resolves to do. And this is not a bill. It has nothing to do with budgets. It has nothing to do with appointments. It's a resolution. It's a statement of the belief of Congress in calling for an immediate de-escalation and ceasefire. So it says, first, all human life is precious and that targeting civilians, no matter their faith or ethnicity, is a violation of international humanitarian law, period, full stop. It says that the armed violence between October 7 and October 16 has claimed the lives of over 2,700 Palestinians and over 1,400 Israelis, including Americans, and wounded thousands more. It says that hundreds of thousands of lives are at imminent risk now if a ceasefire is not achieved and humanitarian aid is not delivered without delay. And it says that the U.S. government holds enormous diplomatic power to save those lives. And in response to that, it says the House of Representatives does two things. 
it urges the Biden administration to call for and facilitate de-escalation and a ceasefire to urgently end the current violence. And second, it calls on the administration to send and facilitate the entry of humanitarian assistance into Gaza. There's no complicated analysis. No one has to accept someone else's view of history. Even the question that I raise over and over again about when do you start the clock? Because history is shaped by when we start the clock. You don't have to resolve that either. And I think that having a resolution like that for people to mobilize around is very, very important, even in a moment when our democracy has so deeply collapsed that we can't even function. There is no Speaker of the House. There is no way to take a formal vote on ordinary uh, bills. But this is not an ordinary bill. And I'm hoping that Congress will have the political will to say, this is important, and this we can vote on. That was Phyllis Bennis, a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, who serves as the international advisor for Jewish Voice for Peace. She's the author of Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict, a Primer. Find more analysis and commentary on the Israel-Hamas war by visiting our Between the Lines website at btl online.org. In retribution for Hamas's October 7th terrorist attack against Israel that killed some 1,400 Israelis, mostly civilians, Israel's government vowed to exterminate Hamas and launched an all-out missile and bombing campaign targeting Gaza, one of the most densely populated areas in the world. According to the Palestinian Ministry of Health, as of October 17th, More than 3,000 civilians in Gaza have been killed, with thousands more injured. On October 16th, the United Nations Security Council failed to adopt a resolution proposed by Russia that called for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza, release of all hostages, aid access, and the safe evacuation of civilians. UN members were divided over the lack of specific condemnation of extremist group Hamas. Meanwhile, progressive Democrats in the U.S. House of Representatives have proposed a resolution calling for a ceasefire and permitting humanitarian aid to enter Gaza. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Offer Nyman, a Jewish-Israeli anti-apartheid activist in Jerusalem who works against the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza through the group BDS From Within. BDS is Palestinian Civil Society's call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel. Here, Nyman describes the mood of many Israelis who are clamoring for revenge for the murder of fellow Jews by Hamas, and some who are outraged by their own government's all-out assault on Gaza. He says that while Israel is united in response to Hamas, he predicts that Benjamin Netanyahu's days as Israel's prime minister are numbered. People are not really rallying uh, behind him. People are rallying uh, as uh, uh, sort of behind Israel and the concept of Israel big time. Of course, I feel like an outsider to this whole um, experience. Uh, they're rallying around the flag, the army, whatever, but but not Netanyahu. And I think that Netanyahu, as far as I know, he hasn't come out yet to a hospital. The, the ministers who have tried doing so were booed and pretty much heckled away. We have um, Likud ministers encountering um, extreme anger, public fury 
the Yom Kippur War in 1973, of course, it's regarded as a failure. I mean, there was a shock, a surprise blow dealt by Egypt and Syria, but nothing of the sort. Back then, it was about um, it was a military battle between two armies here. Uh, you have uh, citizens, uh, um, civilians getting killed. So this is much worse. And, and as we probably know, the Israeli prime minister at the time, Golda Meir, she was forced to resign after after the war. There was also an, a national commission of inquiry. Of course, we're going to have a similar commission uh, uh, after this thing. And I don't see a way for, for uh, Netanyahu to hold on to power. And, and, and the failure here is... is is colossal. It's, it's so much more than, than 1973, because, you know, 1973 was just about the Egyptians being able to cross the Suez Canal and the Syrians entering uh, the Golan Heights, capturing some, some territory. And then Israel pushed back. I mean, the, the failure um, and, of course, I mean, the horror is infinitely worse. Ofer Nyman, how much appetite is there for a military operation to go in and wipe out Hamas? And do people care if tens of thousands or more civilians in Gaza die? Not everyone, but many people are saying, yeah, we should wipe out Gaza, we should destroy the city, or maybe push all of them out. Of course, there aren't any significant anti-war voices. Of course, here and there, we're trying to do something, and we try to work together with our uh, allies and our international allies. But I do think that, that there are lots of people who are sort of confused. They're not so keen on all this genocide. And, and, and that's the relevant term here, genocide. And I think this is already what we're seeing in, in Gaza. That, that's something to emphasize. I don't know if many Israelis are, are supportive of this even crazier idea of going into Gaza and trying to just you know, demolish Gaza City itself. Can you say more about Israel as an apartheid state? Like, are there specific things that go into that designation? In South Africa, the old South Africa, there are two categories, uh, two basic categories of apartheid. One is called petty apartheid, which would be the smaller things, for example, separate toilets for black people and white people, etc. And then there's the notion of grand apartheid, the bigger things, such, for example, who has the, the right to vote, um, allocation of resources, if people are forced to live separately. So in Israel, we don't have so much of that petty apartheid, but we have a grand apartheid on steroids. I mean, if you look at Gaza, again, an open-air prison, basically under Israeli control. Also in Gaza, I mean, water, most of the water is not really suitable, shortage of potable water, people getting sick. In the West Bank, a very clear form of apartheid, grand apartheid, illegal Israeli settlements with privileged settlers were Israeli citizens, alongside millions of disenfranchised Palestinian civilians living under Israeli state violence, facing risks such as detention without trial, torture, controlled directly by the Israeli military, not by the Israeli police. Of course, they cannot vote in the Israeli elections. That was Offer Nyman a Jewish-Israeli anti-apartheid peace activist living in Jerusalem. Find more Israeli commentary on their nation's war with Hamas and the future of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
as the United Auto Workers Union strike against the big three U.S. automakers entered its fifth week, Union President Sean Fain announced that the strike was entering a new phase, where future decisions to increase pressure on the car companies would be at random, by day and by company. Earlier on October 12th, 8,700 union members walked off the job at Ford's Kentucky Assembly Plant that manufactures their best-selling vehicles, including the popular F-150 pickup truck. In a speech on October 16th, Ford's executive chairman, Bill Ford, called on auto workers to come together to end their strike, warning that high labor costs could limit spending on developing new vehicles and investing in factories. The strike, launched on September 15th, is the first time the UAW has struck all three of the nation's unionized car manufacturers, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, at the same time. In an earlier sign of progress, the union announced on October 6th that GM had agreed to place all electric vehicle battery plant workers under the union's national master agreement. Your reporter spoke with Nelson Lichtenstein, research professor at the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Here he discusses the union's demands and what's at stake in the UAW strike for the U.S. labor movement. The background of the strike is, of course, that real wages in the auto industry have declined about 20% for over the last two decades. Certainly the bankruptcy of General Motors and Chrysler then in 2008 and 9. Uh, the, the workers, uh, you know, had no wage increases. Like there, were, there were reductions in wages in various ways. You know, that's sort of the background. And there was lots and lots of uh, discontent in the union, uh, both over that and also over the creation of these so-called tiers, where some workers are paid less and have very few of the benefits that regular workers have. And that's expanded dramatically in the last 15 years. What you had was a election uh, in the union, a, a kind of a referendum election, first time that individual workers could directly vote for their leaders, and a reform insurgent slate uh, won uh, last winter with um, Sean Fain was the um, president. It was a narrow win, but I think he's, he's now gained a lot of popularity. His, his campaign was no concessions, no corruption, no tears. So he and, and others, or obviously the union, has put forward a pretty bold program, bold demands, and among them a, a large wage increase between really 36 and 40 percent, restoration of COLA, cost of living allowances, uh, end of the tier system, better pensions, etc. And, and then even more important, bringing all the new battery plants that will be established, often with a lots of um, federal money out of the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, making sure that these, these new plants are under the regular contract, they're unionized and, and higher wage. So they're doing all of that. And Payne himself, I think, is a very bold and effective speaker. And uh, there seems to be a tremendous public support for the strike, as well as support within the union itself. Professor Lichtenstein, when you look at the U.S. labor movement that has been hemorrhaging membership for decades now, it's interesting that the U.S. public is squarely on the side of the United Auto Workers in this strike and other strikes that have been occurring in record numbers recently. But in your view, what's at stake in this GM strike by the UAW for the broader U.S. labor movement? Victory begets victory. <laughs> success uh, generates success. So if the union is able to succeed, 
then I think it will make the uh, entire labor movement look much more attractive. It will continue the momentum, which has been we've, we've seen in the last two or three years. Uh, it may mean that uh, a good settlement with, with the big three automakers, the union can then say, hey, they can go to Toyota workers who are non-union today or Tesla workers who are non-union and say, hey, join us. Uh, and maybe that, and I think that might have some some uh, more attractive power than than in the past when the union was really on the defensive. Now, there's a larger political. I think this is a political strike in a fundamental way, and, I, and here's where I think what's also at stake, and and it intersects with American partisan politics. Biden, the Biden administration, has really put its money where its mouth is when it comes to what we call industrial policy. That is. In fact, picking, uh, choosing certain industries and certain technologies, which he thinks is essential, in this case to a green transition, and putting billions and billions of dollars of loans and and grants and and guarantees at the disposal of the auto industry to uh, hurry up, accelerate the transition to uh, electric vehicles, you know, for climate reasons and, and everything of that sort. The battery plants are being funded, you know, partly at least, uh, by the federal government. Now, uh, Donald Trump makes the argument, and he made the argument in Michigan just a couple of weeks ago, that this whole green transition is a disaster, that the old auto industry will, will collapse, that is the building engines, gasoline-powered engines and whatnot, will all collapse, people will lose their jobs, and then any new jobs created will be lousy. They'll either be in China or they'll be just low-wage, terrible jobs. In a sense, then, he's sort of banking on defeat of the union. He has a wager on defeat. And in fact, if that were the case, that the new jobs were lousy, a non-union, or many of them were sent to China, then, yeah, workers would say, heck, yeah, I don't want this green transition. Biden's wrong. We don't need to do that. However, what the UAW is, is saying is just the opposite. And, and it's really, in a sense, in tandem with the Biden administration, although they don't you know, make that a big point, but it's there. That is, we want good jobs. We want unionized jobs so that the standard living of, of people in the battery plants and in the electrical vehicle factories will be as high as, as that of traditionally the auto workers uh, when, when the union was strong. And secondly, the Biden administration and the UAW is saying, yeah, these jobs are going to be in the United States. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the whole point of the Inflation Reduction Act, so-called. That is, we're going to build these things in the U.S. So if the union is successful, uh, then it, it's really an endorsement and a ratification and a making uh, real and popular Biden's you know, green transition plans for not just for the auto industry, but for other industries as well. So that's up in the air right now. That was Nelson Lichtenstein research professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara. His latest book is titled A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism, written with the late Judith Stein. Find more news and commentary on the UAW strike by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, KGNU in Boulder, Colorado, KSER in Everett, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.